open it at this time to the book of Romans chapter 7. And if you are here and you do not have a Bible for whatever reason, if you just uh, lift up your hand, the ushers will make their way through the aisles and discreetly drop one off to you so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study tonight. Praise the Lord. In this section of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the subject of sanctification. And we've, for two weeks now, defined that as the process of God working in your life to make you holy, set apart, to conform you into the image of His Son, to bring you into a state of maturity as a Christian. Not as a a, a child or a baby or an immature believer stumbling, but to be like Christ. It's the process of God to make you fruitful. That you bear much fruit, Jesus said, that in that would His Father be glorified. That you bear much fruit. And that comes by abiding in Him. And so, this process of God, from the time that you come to Christ, He's constantly working in you, constantly shaping you, constantly pruning and training and teaching like a coach and like a parent and like a father. And the Bible sums all of that up into the single word of sanctification. The work of God in your life now as a, as a believer, as a Christian. And in this section of Romans, chapters 6, 7, and 8, this is the subject that Paul is dealing with. Now, as we concluded chapter 6 in our study last week, we heard the Apostle Paul give us a very practical exhortation as Christians. He, He warned us, he pleads with us that we should abstain from sin. He he warned and he said that, first of all, sin ensnares and enslaves That that as a newborn believer, though we are free from the law and and we're not going to be judged accordingly and our penalty has been absorbed by Christ, if we choose in that freedom to go back to a sinful lifestyle, we'll find ourselves met with slavery. And not only slavery, but we'll be met with entwinement. That that sin will wrap its arms around us and it will get a grip on us that will grow tighter and stronger even though we have freedom in Jesus Christ. That that sin will also embarrass us. That it will cause shame and it will bring pain to us if we persist in it and continue on doing it. And then ultimately, it will embalm us. That the wages of sin is still death. So Paul laid that upon us. He said, listen, you're free from sin through the body of Christ. In baptism, you've died with Christ to the law. In the sinful part of you, his power has been broken. So continue on in that freedom. Now the natural question that comes next, as we hear what Paul has to say about that, is how? How, Paul, do we get free from sin? How do we abstain from sin? Is there a practical instruction that you can give to us on how we can be free from sin? Well, imagine with me for one minute that you could get in a time machine and go back to first century Rome. 
In the days when this letter was first circulating and going around to those that had given their lives to Christ there in the church. And there you see him over there. His name is Ronaldus Romanus. You know, and he's a first century Roman Christian, a brand new believer in Christ. And he's given a copy of Paul's letter. And it's really the only exposure he has to scriptural truth and the understanding of the Christian faith. And so he begins reading and he starts with chapter one. And it probably didn't have chapters and verses, but he reads Paul's writing and he goes through and he's understanding what Paul is saying. The systematic theology of what Christianity is all about is, is being understood by him. His spirit is bearing witness. He understands that he's a sinner saved by grace, justified by Christ sanctified by the Spirit. And he comes to the end of chapter 6. And he hears Paul's warning about what sin does. And he puts down the letter for a minute and he pauses and he considers what he's reading and, and, and he agrees. He says, yes, this is right. Paul, I agree with you that sin will enslave me, it will ensnare me, it will embarrass me, it will embalm me, and I want to be free from sin. I don't want to do anything that's going to grieve the Lord or screw up my life or confuse and frustrate the sanctifying process within me. I don't want to do any of those things. So Paul, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to abstain from sin. I am going to keep the commands and the laws of God because I do not want that to be my destiny, that to be my story. And so, Ronaldus Romanus kind of puts Romans on pause for a minute and he begins to dig into the law of God. Because he wants to keep it. He wants to be someone who's pleasing to God, to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. That's what's in his heart. That's what's in his mind. And he's excited about his salvation. He's glad to be saved by grace. He's glad that God's working in his life. That his eyes are open to the truth of God. And that he's going to heaven. He's going to keep the law. He, he remembers hearing at some point the words that were written in Psalm 119 uh, verses 7 through 11. Where the psalmist writes there and declares that the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. And so he says to himself, that's what I want for my life. I want to perform and keep the laws of the Lord. I want to adhere to his testimonies and his counsel because they are perfect, they are right, they are preserving, they're finer than gold, sweeter than honey. And so he decides he's going to do it. So his first day, Ronald Romanus, Ronaldus, you know, he, he goes about and he wakes up early in the morning. And he gets into his word, he reads some devotional psalms and he prays, he lifts up some praises to the Lord and some intercession before he starts his day there in Rome. 
And he's blessed, he's happy, there's a, a song in his heart, and, and, and there's joy, and there's a spark, and there's life. And he goes through his day, and it's a great day. God is with him, he's blessed, and, and he's being real careful that he adheres to the will of God within his life. And so he does that. He goes through his day, he goes home, he finishes the, the evening with some prayer and some Bible reading, and, and he says, good night, Lord, and he hits the pillow and he goes to sleep. Well, the next day he rises early again, but not quite as early as he did the day before. I mean, yesterday was a busy day and there's a few things on the schedule. So he does allow and he gives some time for his Bible reading and his devotions like he did. And he hopes as he walks out the door that the day will be as good as it was yesterday. But there is a little bit of a wrinkle in his forehead because he just burned his toast that he was trying to have. And, and things aren't quite setting off the, the right way like they should be for someone who's seeking so sincerely to keep the ways of God. Well, it's a church day, and so he, he goes to church, and he lits, sits there and listens, and he's happy and blessed. And, but he happens to notice that the other people in the church aren't taking notes quite as diligently as he is. He, he can't write enough stuff down. He just notices, no big deal, it's not that much. And, 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 you know, he also can't help but notice that there's still some other people within the church there in Rome that aren't dressed quite appropriately for such a gathering. I mean, they should have maybe a little bit more discernment about what they're wearing in a place of worship, you know. But, you know, hey, we're not judging anybody, it's just an observation, you know. And, and, and was that a conversation I heard about the fights in the Colosseum last night? I mean, these people are Christians, right? Going to... No matter, no matter. It's just an observation. Something that I heard while I was in the solid ground getting a cup of Roman espresso. So you leave and you go through the rest of your day and that evening on your way home you stop and you get a WWJD bracelet, because you were having some thoughts and desires that you really shouldn't be having, and maybe that'll help a little bit if I just can consider and think to myself, what would Jesus do before I act or think or do anything that I would do? I'm just going to get that, and so you go to sleep on day two. But then day three comes along, and this time you oversleep your alarm completely. You didn't even hear it go off. You're discouraged and you're slightly overwhelmed as you walk out the door that morning late and you brace for a rough day, not expecting much good to come from it for you didn't ask God to really bless and you weren't really putting in the time that you want. And on your way to work, you're a little bit overwhelmed because you begin to think, man, you know, like six people asked me to pray for them. And there was family members that I needed to lift up and intercede for and situations and stuff that I needed to deal with before the Lord. And I didn't get any of that done. My prayer list is getting backed up. My Bible reading is starting to get clogged. My list of things I have to do spiritually is getting quite heavy. And I don't really know when I'm going to fill these things and catch up on all the stuff that I have to do. And so the days continue and frustration begins to ensue. And this life of holiness that you've committed to turned from joy of heart and desire to seek the Lord to frustration and discouragement. And by the end of the first week, you wonder, where did the joy go in this whole Christian thing? I was so happy to be forgiven and to be free, and now I seem to have this whole new set of handcuffs upon me. How did this happen? What happened is, Ronaldus Romanus married the law. 
He got married to the law. Well, what's going on here in Romans 7? If we want to abstain from sin, well then how should we do it if the law is not the answer? How can we be free from sin? What is it that Paul now goes on to talk about in this section? How do we get free from sin? What is the Christian's relationship to the law? And what is the purpose of the law altogether? Well, how does it work? The Apostle Paul begins in chapter 7, talking about this subject, by saying, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now, Paul begins this section here talking about what exactly is the Christian's relationship to the law with an analogy. Now, we all understand this analogy. It's the law of marriage. Very practical. You get married and you make a promise, a vow that you're going to be faithful to your spouse until you die. And so there's this relationship that is singular and separate from all other relationships. And it's a till death do us part relationship. And nothing is to break that bond until death. That's part of what the marriage vow is. And so, if another relationship of equal status is enjoined upon during the time that that marriage covenant is still enacted, i.e., they're still alive, then it's called adultery. It's unfaithfulness. You've broken the covenant. But, if one part of that partnership passes and dies, and then the living partner marries someone else, hey, no problem. Someone's died, the covenant is null and void, and you're free now to marry another. Paul is using this analogy in his discussion of the law. Now, as it concerns marriage, every woman so longs to meet the perfect man. From the time, even my daughters, you know, you kind of sense that in them, there's kind of this sense that one day they're going to have their Prince Charming. That one day they're going to marry a a Mr. Perfect. You know, someone who is just perfectly, you know, planned by God. Someone who just looks absolutely perfect. And someone who acts and behaves perfect. And someone who has the perfect job. And the perfect head of hair. You know, and the perfect set of manners. And the perfect, you know, diligence and keeping schedule. And, and, you know, and everything about him is just going to be perfect. And so she finds him and she marries Mr. Perfect. And, And he is, man, he is all of that. Perfect in his looks, perfect in his ways. He wakes up in the morning and he smells and looks perfect. He, he, he puts on his clothes and they're all ironed and perfectly wrinkled free and he's ready to go. He has the perfect breakfast before he walks out the door. You know, eggs, but not the yolk because there's cholesterol. And, and oatmeal, you know, and because it's the perfect breakfast. And he leaves at exactly the perfect time so that he'll get to work perfectly at 9 o'clock, right when he's supposed to. And he'll work a perfect shift without any flaws, you know, handling all of his issues. And you look at his desk and it's perfect. And then he comes home, he checks out, not one minute early, not 5.01, not 4.59, but 5 o'clock he leaves. 
And he, he heads for home. And, and then he gets there. And he drives perfect speed limit there. And he pulls perfectly into his perfect parking spot in the perfect garage. And he walks in and everything is perfect until, until you meet him at the door. See, he's perfect. And because he's perfect, he can't help but notice as he walks in the house that you have a hair out of place. His eye is immediately drawn to it and he can't ignore it. His eyes then shift over to the door where the doorknob is somewhat dusty. He runs his finger along the top of the door and it comes down dirty and his eyebrow then wrinkles and he looks at it and he says, this isn't perfect. And you say, oh, well, uh, it's been kind of a busy day. And he says, what's that smell? And dinner is burning in the oven. A pile of unfolded laundry is cluttered in the corner. A crying child is heard in the background. And suddenly, being married to Mr. Perfect isn't all that it was cracked up to be. Because, see, although he's perfect, you don't quite measure up. And that becomes a problem. Because now... What was once to be marital bliss in being married to Mr. Perfect, now your flaws are accentuated all the more by his perfection and all that he is. And so you think, I've got to get out of this. It's driving me crazy. I cannot stand to be married to Mr. Perfect anymore. It's killing me. And so you wisely, shrewdly slip a little bit of cyanide or rat poison into his dinner. Because you've got to get out of this. He's, you you know, he can't be divorced. He won't allow for it because he's perfect. And and so you've got to do something. So you you slip the cyanide in, but because he's perfect, he can't die. He he, he knows there's something wrong and he intuitively doesn't eat it. He doesn't partake of it. And and so he doesn't die. And so then the despair goes overboard and you think there's only one way out. I've got to end it for myself. And so you put the cyanide into your own sauce that night, you know, and and you eat it. And finally, you find that you're free. And that is exactly the analogy that the Apostle Paul is using concerning our relationship to the law. Read in verse 4, he applies his analogy. He says, wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. He says, you are now become dead to the law. The law was perfect. You were once married to it, and you could never measure up. And the thing that was supposed to be blissful, the thing that was supposed to cause your life to be blessed and fruitful, actually brought despair, depression, And ultimately death upon you. And thankfully in your baptism. Upon the cross of Christ. As he absorbed sin's penalty. And fulfilled sin's requirement. In keeping of the law. You are now freed from the law. You are become dead to the law. Your relationship to the law. Is that you are dead to it. It no longer applies to you. You're no longer married to it. The two are no longer one. There's been a separation. Why? So that you could be lawless? No. So that you could be married to Christ. That's what the Bible says. That you could be married to the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. And who obtained resurrection power, eternal life, and blessing from God. That's the destiny that you have. You've become dead to the law by the body of Christ. That you should be married to Christ. 
that you should now bring forth fruit unto God. You are free now to bear fruit. Under the law, married to the law, you could never bear fruit because you could never measure up. But being married to Christ now, you're free to bring forth fruit. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. The fact that you were full of sin and linked to the law only accentuated the darkness and the sin of your situation. And the fruit that was born was nothing but death. It was discouragement. It was darkness. But now, verse 6, we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. He says in this new marriage, it's no longer a relationship where it's requirement, ritual, and letters, but rather now you're free in this marriage to Christ, the living resurrected Christ, to serve him in the newness of the spirit. What is he talking about? See, a relationship with God that's according to the law or the oldness of the letter, as Paul puts it here, is a relationship that would be much like being married to the perfect man. In order for it to be successful, it has to be very methodical and mechanical. Everything has to be done the perfect way at the perfect time. Your relationship with God is all written down. It's all a a, a list of check marks and boxes and and, and fulfilled duties and prescribed uh, activities and all of the rest in, in, in trying to keep things working out with God. Everything that you do in your relationship with him is planned out and calculated ahead of time. It's it's premeditated and then it's carried out at the right time as prescribed. It's based on a list of expectations that God has laid out for you and demands that he has. And its graces are required or are contingent upon you keeping all of those things. Are you able to keep all of those lists, expectations and demands? By the letter, it's performance-based, and ultimately, you find that God is impossible to please, because you do not have the ability to keep the perfect demands of the holy, righteous law. That's the oldness of the letter. People have relationships like that all the time. Now, Paul says when you're linked to Christ, when you're being sanctified by the Spirit of the living God taking residence within your heart, The relationship that you have with God is no longer methodical and mechanical, but rather now you're brought into a moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus Christ. You recall in the gospel when Jesus was there with his disciples, it was shortly before he was to go to the cross. And as he was there sharing and eating, partaking with his disciples, he looked at them and he told them something that would have puzzled me if I was sitting there in the room. He said, it is absolutely necessary that I go away. He used the word expedient, which is just a a very powerful word that demonstrates that I need to go and it's for your benefit. And, and, And you can almost feel the tension in the room. What? You need to leave? Jesus, not for nothing, but haven't you been here for the past three years and seen everything that's happened with you here? And now you're saying that it's necessary for you to leave? Why? How? I don't get it. What gives? And Jesus then went on to say, he said, because if I go, then the Holy Spirit will come and take up his residence, his dwelling place within you. And that, the implication is, 
will be far more profitable to you than me sitting across the table and talking to you. See, at that point, it begins to make sense. Sometimes I think, Jesus, if you were right here with me all the time, physically, presently, you were here standing with me. And, and when I'm driving, you were sitting in the passenger seat. And, and when I was working, you were there handing me stuff and telling me how to accomplish. Lord, that would be so good. It would be so easy. But as the Lord looked at me and said, how about, Nick, I don't do that, but instead I move into you and I live inside you. Which is better? Jesus was saying, it's better for me to go because if I go, then I can move in. If I stay, I have to stay out. What's better, an external relationship that's based on external values and external exponents? Or an internal relationship that's based on a spiritual walk with God that's moment by moment. The new covenant that he says he'll write his will, his laws within our hearts and place them within our minds. That no longer will someone say, know the Lord. Hey, Nick, this is Jesus. Jesus, this is Nick. But he says that they'll know me internally. Intuitively, I'll be inside them. That's the newness of the spirit. It's a moment by moment relationship. It's current and constant fellowship that you can have with Jesus. It's not interrupted by hellos and goodbyes. It's not contingent and based upon your performance to keep and to do the things that it says in the word. It's a response to a present impulse that he gives within your heart rather than calculated obedience to a checklist that he's provided. It's real. It's not fake. It's relationship, not religion. And it's based on unconditional love. Therefore, he's very easy to please. It's not a performance-based relationship where he's impossible. See, the letter versus the spirit. The law versus the indwelling Christ. Legalism versus relationship. That's the difference between trying to fulfill the righteousness of the law and simply letting God work in your life. We understand that difference between the letter and the spirit. Very simply, I remember growing up, my wife is a, a, a pianist and she teaches piano lessons. And I remember when I was a kid, my parents tried really hard to you know, give me piano lessons. And, and I remember that you would have two types of people in piano lessons. There would be the letter people, you know, the people that played the piano by the letter. And they would play and their head would nod. They'd go, and, and, and you're listening to like Mary had a little lamb and it's like, the, the, and, and you know that that's the letter. You know, they are perfectly in time. The metronome is clicking, you know, and things are, and they, man, they're perfect. They got it down. But you're sitting there going, this is the worst Mary had a little lamb I have ever heard. But then there's someone that has the spirit, kind of the spirit of the piano. And they play, and it's like beautiful. It's methodical. It's melodious. It's got highs and lows. And you know that that person has the spirit of it. You understand the difference? There's the methodical, and then there's the musical. And the same thing is true here. There's a, a letter relationship with God, but then there's the Spirit, where He's living inside of you, where you understand and know Him in a personal and real way. And Paul is saying that that's what we've been given in Christ now that we are dead to the law. Our relationship to the law as Christians is that we are dead to it. We're free from it, and we're married to Christ. Now, in marriage, two become one. The Bible says that they too shall become one flesh. The Bible says that Adam was linked with Eve and he called their name Adam. He saw them as a unit, that they were one. Now what does that mean if you and I are married to Christ? 
that God looks at us as one. That when he sees you, he sees Christ. And when he sees Christ, he sees you because you are linked to him. Therefore, your righteousness is absolutely fulfilled and your relationship to him is unbreakable. That's what's been given to you in the glory of this cross that Jesus has obtained or, or, or went to for you. Amazing. You know, well, we've got to move on. The second question that Paul answers here in this chapter is, and naturally, you say, well, then what is the purpose of the law? If the law was never intended to bring me into a right standing with God, and that even as a Christian, the law isn't the means by which I can glorify and please God, then what was the purpose of the law in the first place, and what's its purpose today? Well, three things in the rest of the chapter, as Paul moves on, is that first of all, the law reveals the problem of sin within me. The law is what reveals the problem of sin within me. Look at verse 7. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, or no, I had not known sin, or I would not have known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. The law is what reveals sin. Paul says, I wouldn't have known what lust was unless there was a law given that said, thou shalt not covet or be jealous of what someone else has or want something that isn't yours. That's what revealed the lust that was within me, Paul says. When we take the kids to Chuck E. Cheese, which thankfully is uh, becoming a far more distant spread as they get older. When you first walk in the door, if you're familiar with the new setup there, is they put an infrared stamp on the child's hand, right or left hand. And, and so they, you know, hit the ink pad and they stamp your child. And the child doesn't look like they have any mark on their hand at all whatsoever. It looks perfectly clean, just like it did before you walk in. But if you pass their hand underneath the infrared light, it will have a number that has to correspond with the number that's stamped on the parent's hand. But you can't see it unless it's placed under the infrared light. And then the number appears because it's some magical kind of ink. What Paul is saying here is that the law was a magical light that revealed a dark problem within us. That it was the light of the law that revealed the darkness of sin that was within us. And that without the law, that darkness that was always there would not have been understood or comprehended. Paul explains this by using his own life as an example. He says that I would not have known what lust was unless the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Now that's very interesting to me. This law and how it works. And what it did in Paul's heart. Because Paul was a man who by his own admission was a very righteous and upstanding person. He was one that would have said, I was, I'm a good person. I don't do anything wrong. In fact, he says about himself in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, speaking of before he was saved, before he was a Christian, he says that though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless, Paul claims. That means that Paul, on a regular basis, would take his list of the Ten Commandments. 
And he would sit down and he would make his checklist and he would check them off. You shall have no other gods before me. I do not. Check. You shall make no graven image or any carved idol. Check. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Check. You shall keep holy the Sabbath and remember it. Check. You shall honor your father and mother. Check. You shall not kill. Check. You shall not steal. Check. You shall not commit adultery. Check. You shall not bear false witness or lie. Check. And Paul would go through each of the commandments and say, righteous, 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 righteous. But then he would get to number 10. And number 10 is different than the first nine. Because the first nine, you can monitor your behavior and assess your innocence or your guilt based on whether or not you have broken any of those things physically with your hands. But number 10 is different. Because number 10 doesn't require any use of your hands whatsoever. Number 10 goes under the skin. Thou shalt not covet. And at that point, it becomes very complicated. Because now it's not a matter of did I steal or did I kill or did I worship or bow down or worship a graven image or have another God. No, no, at this point now, what was I thinking? Was I lusting after that woman? Was I coveting that person's possessions? Was I desiring someone else's position? And at that point, it becomes very hard because now the sin is really revealed. If you're honest. See, you can hide that easier than any of the other things from people. But it becomes very apparent to yourself. And so Paul at that point realized, I have a problem. Because although all of the other nine that require a check or a, you know, admission of guilt, this one is an issue of the heart. And he said, I couldn't escape it. I wouldn't have known lust except for the law that said, thou shalt not covet. But when I read that law, he says, this is what happened. Verse 8, he says, but sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of I love this word. It's only in the King James. Concupiscence. Can you say that? Concupiscence. I had to practice, you know. What does it mean? What does it mean? Concupiscence means, uh, very simply, that... um, I'm looking for it here. I know what it says. I don't know why I look down. But it says, a longing for what is forbidden. A longing for what is forbidden. That's what he says the law does. How does the law reveal sin? Because that's the claim he's making, is that the law is the revealer of sin. Well, how? How does the law reveal sin? He says, well, when the sin came, or when the commandment came, the sin worked in me concupiscence, which was a desire for that which is wrong. Now, we all can relate to that. Because what happens in you when someone tells you you can't have something? Immediately, you first think, why? And then you think, oh, yes, I can. And then you think, oh, yes, I will. I remember when the movie The Titanic came out. And man, it was in the churches. If you were a Christian at that time, that was the hot spot in the sermons and the pulpits across the country. Is Ooh, yes, it's epic. Ooh, yes, it's huge. There's never been a blockbuster event like this, but there's nudity in it. And therefore, if you are a Christian, you are not to set your eyes upon that film. I remember hearing that over and over again. And do you know what happened to me? I want to see the Titanic. Not because I wanted to see the nudity, but because I was told I couldn't see the movie. When Lord of the Rings was huge, the trilogy was expanding, and the publicity was growing, 
there was a debate about, well, is it right for a Christian to really partake in that and watch it? I mean, there's wizards and witchcraft and all kinds of things that the Bible condemns. So would it be righteous? And it made me want to see it really bad. Harry Potter, you know, this is just plain out demonic, you know, anybody who calls themselves, and I, I just want to see it. What happens? You see, it's when you see the 55, what do you say? I 64. See, because what happens when the law comes, when you see the law, if there's sin alive within you, the result is concupiscence. I want to see how far I can go. It works in you. The law works in you a desire to push the envelope. How far can I go? What can I do? It makes me want the thing that's forbidden. The commandment creates concupiscence. Amazing. Paul says how this worked within my life. For without the law, sin was dead. If none of those things had ever been mentioned, then it never would have been an issue or a thought or a desire in me at all. He says, for, what, for I was alive without the commandment once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to be life, I found to be unto death. Amazing. You know, it's just like the WWJD bracelet that people strap on their wrists or the cards that people sign at a promise keepers meeting or like we talked about in our opening illustration of Rinaldus Romanus who made his promise that he was going to keep the law of God. It's supposed to bring life. That card that I signed at the promise keepers that I was going to do this or do that, it was supposed to be life, but I found that I didn't have the power to keep the promise that I pledged. And so it was supposed to bring life, but the result was condemnation and death because I don't have the ability within the sinful flesh to do the thing that I promised before God. The WWJD bracelet is great. It's a statement being made to those around me about where I stand and what I live for. But I tell you, for one week, if you measure every action you do off that bracelet, at the end of your week, you'll be frustrated and condemned. Because what you'll find is how unlike Christ you really are. That's what you discover. The commandment that's ordained to be life, you find to be death. Because you don't have the power to keep the law. Why? Because the law wasn't intended to make you holy. The law was intended to reveal that you're a sinner and that you're in big trouble if you don't have a savior. That was the purpose of the law. And the law reveals that sin by creating concupiscence where sin is presence. The law also not only reveals sin in us, but the law also brings condemnation. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 11. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it, slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. He said, is the problem with the law? Is that the issue here? Is there something flawed about the law? Well, we already read in Psalm 119, or Psalm 19, that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and clean, righteous altogether. More to be desired. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. 
Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law. There's nothing wrong with the law at all. That's what Paul's saying. Therefore, the problem is with me. That sin becomes exceedingly sinful. The law is spiritual, but I am carnal. And when you put the law together with you, that's what you come to the conclusion of. That's what you realize, is that I am sinful. So the law reveals sin within us. The law also brings condemnation to us. This is a classic passage of scripture. I'm just going to read it to you so that you can get as confused as the concept will make you. And then we'll go back and untie it. But from verse 15, he describes the condemnation that results from trying to keep the law. He says, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that what I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good... Evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members or my flesh, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my flesh. O wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Now, did you get all that? Let's move on. Verse 25. No. Do you ever feel this way? Hey, 35 times Paul uses the word I, me, my, myself in the middle of this thing in his pursuit to try to be righteous. And it's confusing and frustrating. And it's a sentiment that becomes very familiar to every Christian, even very early on in your Christianity. The feeling of this struggle, this battle within of doing good versus doing evil and pleasing God and the will of God. Let me untie this for you at least the best I can. What I did is I kind of wrote this in my own words. And kind of the way it breaks down is that Paul does this three times. He makes three statements that are factual. And then he concludes with a statement. He does that three times. So it's three facts, a conclusion. Then three facts, a conclusion. And then three facts and a conclusion. Let me give those to you. Fact number one found in verse 15. If you try to follow along up there, you might get really confused. You can play this out. You know, but... Fact number one in verse 15, Paul says, I forbid myself to behave the way I do. I forbid myself to behave the way I do. Fact number two, also in verse 15, I do not behave the way I want to. And fact number three, also in verse 15, I find myself behaving in a way I hate. Therefore, the conclusion in verse 16, if then I behave in a way that I don't think is right, then I must be agreeing that the law of God is good. See, if if I can look at my own behavior and say, I don't think it's right, and I can look at good behavior and say, I can't do that, then there's something internally that's agreeing with what God said about what's right and wrong. So I agree, the law of God is right and good. Oh boy, not looking good for me so far. Well, 
The next fact, three, three more facts and then a conclusion in verse 17. He says, so then, it is not the part of me that wills or desires that is misbehaving, but it's the part of me where sin lives. He now kind of divides himself a little bit and he says, well, there's a part of me that is good because there's a part of me that desires to do what's right, that wants to live righteously, that wants to be holy. But then there's another part of me that sins like crazy and likes sin and wants to sin and hungers for sin. So therefore, the part of me that is willing or desiring to be right, that's the part that's good. But the part of me that doesn't that's you know it is the part of me that wills that is misbehaving but it's the part of me where sin lives next fact verse 18 i know that in me that is the part of me where sin lives there is no good at all it is easy for me to want to do good but i do not have the power to do it that's a huge statement by the way that paul makes concerning himself he says in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing That your flesh, your members, your desires, the part of you that is the old man you. He says there is nothing good in that whatsoever. You ever hear of the Kevin Bacon game? I I know I'm digging into ancient history here. You know, but there was this old thing that people used to do that if you would shout out the name of like a, a famous movie star actor... Any famous movie star or actor ever, you could somehow link them back to Kevin Bacon by, you know, linking things together and all that. I could never do it. But here's what I got from that. I remember when that game came out, is that I realized that there's a Nick Santo game that really is very strong, that I'm really good at. And that is that every single thing that I do, everything that I do, no matter what it is, even teaching the Bible in many cases, is that there's a selfish motivation behind it. And that all I have to do is link a few thoughts and things together and I can get right down to the reason why I'm doing even the most seemingly selfless thing. Helping out someone at the hospital or something like that. And I can just, oh no, I'm doing it for this, this, and this. I'll be seen, I'll be noticed, I'll be heard, it'll be for this. And there's always a way. And it's exactly true what Paul said, that in me there dwells no good thing. It's amazing, you know, I I remember, and this goes way back now into ancient history too, I actually did some fasting. And I was fasting this one time, and I remember that Georgia said, hey, we're going over to so-and-so's house. And I was like, oh! And then I remembered that I'm fasting. And I went, oh. And all of a sudden, I didn't want to go. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. The only reason I like going to their house is because there's good food. It became very real to me at that point. That wow, in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. There is a selfish motivation behind everything. Everything. Apart from Christ. In our flesh. That we do. And that's a fact that Paul concludes concerning himself there in in verse 18. Then the third fact, in verse 19 of the second grouping of facts, he says, the good behavior that I want to demonstrate, I just don't live up to it. But the bad behavior that I despise, that I continue to do. So, second conclusion in verse 20. So, if I'm behaving in a way that is contrary to how I want to behave, then it is not the part of me that desires that's doing it, but it's the part of me that sins. Now, third set of facts and conclusions, and then we'll be done with this dizzying logical puzzle that Paul is placing before us. In verse 21, first fact, I find then a law 
a law like gravity at work within me, that even when I want to do the right thing sincerely, sinful behavior is still alive within me, keeping me from doing that good thing. Fact. Fact number two in verse 22. I sincerely like and agree with God's laws in my mind and desires. But there's another powerful force at work in my body fighting against the good desires in my mind and winning. And thus it's crippling and killing my good intentions. My good intentions are overpowered by the strength of my sinful flesh. And then third fact in verse 23, I realize that my body is stronger than my mind or my flesh is stronger than my will. So the conclusion in verse 24 Oh, wretched man that I am. I am wretched. My wicked body is killing and condemning me. Because I do not find that I possess the power to do that which I'm supposed to do. Now listen. When a person comes to the understanding after going through the battle of wrestling with what you want to do versus what you find yourself doing, and you come to the conclusion that Paul comes to in verse 24, where he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Then the law has done its work upon your life. The purpose of the law has now been fulfilled and completed within you. It has brought you to the point where now the only thing left for you to do, if there's any hope for you to Live right before God is to cry out to God for deliverance. That there's no longer a checklist of things that you do or don't do. But now you're crying out to him because he's the only one that delivers you. The law reveals sin. The law brings condemnation. But then third and finally, the law drives us to Jesus Christ. In verse 24 and 25, he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Who shall deliver me from the power of this sin, the power of this darkness, the power of these desires in my life? Notice that he doesn't say what. He doesn't say what's going to deliver me. What program can I get into that's going to break the power of this sin? What book can I read that's going to inspire me afresh so that I can gain victory again and get over this thing? What study group can I join that will be a good support for me to have my my holiness exalted or fixed? What can I do? No, he doesn't say any of that. It's not a what, it's a who. There is no what that can fix the problem of sin in anyone's life. Not the what of the law. Or the what of a program, the what of accountability, none of it. Those things have their place, I'm not discounting them. But the only thing that can deliver you from a life of sin and bring you into a life of blessing, fruit, and holiness is your relationship with a who, and that is Jesus Christ. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law drives us to Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29, Paul describes it this way. He says, what then, for what purpose then serves the law? He says, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if Now listen, this is where you've got to pay attention. For if 
there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up or closed off unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Why or wherefore then the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Praise the Lord. For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. Through Jesus Christ, we are delivered not only from the law, but we are also delivered from the power of sin within our life. And the result of this liberty is told to us in chapter 8, verse 1 of Romans. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, after the law, being married to the law, but after the Spirit, being saved by grace. Let me ask you as we close, and the musicians can come. Has your Christian experience become somewhat perhaps like a, our fictional character, Rinaldus Romanus? Have you found yourself in your Christian walk bound under the marital woes of legalism, being married to the law, even as a Christian? Constantly seeking to elevate your standing before God and men by the standards that you've imposed upon yourself? while at the same time looking down at others because they haven't lived up to those same standards? Maybe your Christian experience has become dull and frustrating because God has become impossible to please. Maybe you're cheating on grace. You've gone back to your former husband. You've revived and remarried yourself to the law. Do you as a Christian look around and see other people, perhaps, that God is blessing and using and it puzzles and frustrates you because you feel like you've got it more together than they do. And yet God isn't using you and your Christianity is not described by blessing at all. And there's frustration. Perhaps maybe you're a parent. And the picture that your kids are getting about the personality of God is that he's hard to please. Because of the standards that are strictly placed upon them and your concept of who God is and how we live with him. That his blessing is conditional. That his love must be earned through our obedience. What Paul is saying to us in this passage, in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, and he's going to go on in chapter 8, is that this thing of sanctification is not a checklist. Our being made like Christ is not something that we do and perform. But it's Christ in you. It's God transforming you from the inside out, moving in and rewiring you. He changes your desires, not your behaviors. He doesn't say, you know, that you're no longer to do this or do that, but you are to do this and do that, but rather he changes it from the inside. You find yourself wanting to do things differently. 
You no longer have the craving to go to that place or hang with that crowd or partake of that activity. It's internal. It's something that happens authentically, sincerely. It's God living within you and and filling you with Himself. It's Him speaking to you in your heart and in your mind and leading you. Walking in the Spirit. God invites us to walk in this new covenant relationship with Him. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. God says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You no longer have to live your Christian life confusing Jesus Christ with Santa Claus. That he's making a list and checking it twice. No longer have to worry about what day it is that you're worshiping on. And if you were fully submerged when you were baptized or sprinkled with water. And oh no, God's not with me because I was only sprinkled, you know. Or it doesn't matter. You're not under the law. You don't have to think about, well, did I read today? How's my checklist going in my devotions? But rather, you can just expect that God is with you. You can expect Him to bless you just in the same way that you're married to Christ. You don't have to worry about whether or not He's left you today or if He's going to bless you today. You are one. You've been married to Christ in your profession of faith. It's not a how, but it's a who. The fruit of the Spirit, not something you practice, it's something that God cultivates and works into your life by the power of His Spirit and the promise in your faith. Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God invites you to die to the law, to be married to Christ. Will you accept that invitation? Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. 